and uh, welcome to another Sunday morning as we open the scriptures together and study in our Change Your Mind series. In this season of Lent, we are talking about what it really means to repent and knowing that that word flows out of this idea of turning or changing or changing your mind. And so we're exploring that today, and actually today is going to be a little bit of a different message than what you've heard uh, the last few weeks. Instead of talking about those who have changed their minds uh, in a positive way, I'd like to explore an example of where we can change our minds in ways that probably are not in line with God's good and perfect will. You'll recall that our scripture we're working with here is Romans 12, verses 1 and 2. And in Romans 12, verses 1 and 2, it says, By the mercies of God, we're to offer ourselves as living sacrifices, that we are to, to grow into the image of Christ by being transformed by the renewing of our minds, to have our minds changed and transformed so that, we don't want to forget the so that, so that we can determine God's will in our lives. Now, that's why we're doing this. We're growing into the image of Christ so we can know what God wants from us and what God wants in the world around us. And so there are examples uh, where sometimes we change our mind and it's not in alignment with God's will. So maybe if you're more conservative, you felt like the last few weeks have been kind of hard for you. I've been pushing on issues of gay rights or racism and, and wokeism, things like that, and it probably felt like God, I feel like I'm just constantly being uh, stretched. Well, today it's uh, the turn for my progressive friends that are watching. You're going to be stretched a little bit today <laughs> as we hold back a little bit and focus on tradition and scripture and how we can change our mind in healthy ways rather than in unhealthy ways. So today we are going to talk about atonement theory. Yeah. I know that when you woke up this morning, you got your cup of coffee, and you're like, all right, I'm going to open up my phone or my computer, watch Pastor Levi's sermon today, and I really hope it's about atonement theory. <laughs> uh, don't worry, it won't be super boring, I promise. Uh, but we are going to talk about atonement theory today, and there's a reason. It's because lately, <clears throat> online, I've seen the same meme going around on, on social media over and over again, I see this being posted and reposted. And when I first read it, it bothered me. But now that I see it being reposted so much, it bothers me a lot. <laughs> and so I thought, you know, this particular social media post was about uh, atonement. So let's talk about that. Let's talk about why uh, some progressive Christians have changed their mind on atonement in a way that I think is not in line with God's will. It's not as healthy as we might want to be in terms of how we view scripture and how we view atonement. So I saw this meme posted by Dr. Will Gaffney. Uh, it was a quote uh, from a UCC pastor, uh, Reverend Dr. Caleb Lines. Now, Will Gaffney is one of my favorite writers. Um, she wrote uh, Womanist Midrash. If you haven't read that, I highly recommend it. It's a powerful, beautiful book about um, womanist theology, which is typically uh, African-American women or feminism and theology. Uh, but <clears throat> the way that Will Gaffney writes, she typically treats the scripture with such respect and honor as she works through it. Uh, that book, Womanist Midras, is literally one of my favorite theological works ever. So I was a little sad when I saw this meme posted. I thought, well... 
Maybe it's designed to make us think, right? Now, there are healthy ways to change your mind, to seek the transformation of God, and there are unhealthy ways of changing your God, your mind, where you, you make God in your own image instead of being transformed into the image of Christ. And so we're going to use this meme of atonement as an example of how we can change our mind in, in healthy ways, hopefully in alignment with God's will. We walk in humility, knowing that we can make mistakes. But first we need to ask ourselves a question. What is atonement theory? Now, what I'm going to say is uh, first put up the meme on the screen for you to read this, this quote from Dr. Caleb Lines. It says, Jesus was crucified for standing up to empire, not to atone for the sins of humanity. There you go. Give me a chance to look at it and read it. So what's this word atone mean? Why does this matter? What is the point of what this pastor is saying? Well, atonement theory is really pretty simple. Uh, atonement is basically what in the heck happened on the cross? What happened? When Jesus was crucified, there was an effect that was made. There was a change in the world, a change in the universe, a change in the fabric of who we are as human beings. What was it that happened on the cross? That's that fancy word for atonement. It's an old English word, at one meant to be at one, which will tell you a little bit about what some people think atonement is. It's about being made one with God. But there's some mystery that happened on the cross. And what you will see is that if you dive into the scriptures, there's a lot of diversity of opinion about what uh, atonement is, about what happened on the cross. So I'm going to give you some examples from scripture so you can see the diversity of opinion. This will not cover every uh, atonement theory out there, but these are just some of the highlights. So one way we can think about atonement is that there was a payment or an appeasement made to God. Uh, there are verses like 1 John 2, 2. There are lots of verses like this that say that Jesus is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but for the sins of the whole world. That word propitiation, it's kind of like an offering that's made, a sacrifice that's made. Uh, early on, it was called a satisfaction theory of atonement, that God was satisfied by the death of Christ in the place of people. Now, close to that is an atonement theory called substitution. And substitution uh, comes from you know, verses like Galatians 3.13. It says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. So you can see the substitution happening here, right? There's this, you know, Christ becomes the curse, and so we no longer have to be cursed. There's this exchange. Um, there's another one in 2 Corinthians 5 that says, God made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God. So there's this switch, this substitution, this exchange that happens. There's another theory of atonement called the ransom theory. Jesus himself talks about how he came to be a ransom. And in 1 Timothy 2.6, it says, Jesus gave himself as a ransom for all, a witness given at the proper time. Now, the question for ransom theory is, who is ransoming who and how is that working? In the very early church, they thought of it as Jesus was paying a ransom to the devil. By dying on the cross, Jesus effectively died for everybody and paid off 
the uh, the death payment that we all owe to the devil that goes back to the beginning with Adam and Eve. And so Jesus sort of pays off the devil. And uh, because of that, the devil no longer owns us. Jesus now owns us. And he's rescued us from basically being kidnapped by the devil. Later in the Middle Ages, people were not satisfied with the idea that God would have to pay the devil something. So they switched it a little bit to talking about how really Jesus was paying God off <laughs> by uh, by essentially dying for us. God no longer had to kill us was kind of the basic idea. Uh, and that got mutated into a whole other kind of atonement that Reformed churches teach, uh, but we don't teach it in the United Methodist Church, and I'm not going to spend any time on it today. There's also an atonement theory about wholeness and healing in 1 Peter 2.24. It says, Jesus bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. It quotes from Isaiah, for by his wounds you were healed. So it's this weird upside down thing where Jesus is wounded and in so doing heals our wounds. There's that interesting wholeness and healing. There's another atonement concept called reconciliation. Romans 5 talks a lot about this. It says, We exult in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Yeah, reconciliation. So we've been reconciled to God. We were somehow estranged or apart from God before, and now we've been brought back together with God. One of the earliest atonement theories was this thing called Christus Victor, or Christ's uh, victorious conquering of death. Hebrews 2.9 says, We do see Jesus, who was made a little while lower than the angels, namely Jesus, because of the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. So you see, Jesus dies so we don't have to basically. Now, we still sort of pass from this life to the next. We don't go to the place of death that existed in the time of Jesus. That's a whole other conversation, but we'll talk about it sometime. Another atonement theory is that basically Jesus is the new Adam, and this is a redo. This is also in Romans 5. So in the same chapter, in the same writer, he's sort of scratching at what happened on the cross. And he says in Romans 5, 18, so then as through one transgression, there resulted condemnation to all men. In other words, because Adam sinned, everybody is condemned. Even so, through one act of righteousness, there resulted justification of life to all people. Right? So Adam screwed it up for everybody. Jesus makes it right for everybody. <laughs> and there's the, the last one. Another very early church atonement theory was called Christus Exemplar. Christ is the perfect example and so, because Christ died on the cross for us, Christ demonstrates love in a perfect way that no one had previously or since demonstrated. And so, we see that in 2 Corinthians 5 as well, uh, verses 14 and 15. For the love of Christ controls us, having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all so that they who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. You see, in other words, Jesus died not just to cover our sins, but to give us a purpose and an example, to live the way Jesus lived, because Jesus died the way we should have died. Now, you might notice something here, which is that there's a lot of diversity of opinion on atonement theory. So what is atonement anyway? How do we describe it? 
And I think the truth is that it's such a mystery and it's so incomprehensible to the human mind that all these writers in the New Testament are sort of scratching at a truth. They're trying to get at a truth. And yes, there's some satisfaction made of God. There's some propitiation. There's a sacrifice here. There's substitution in some way. There's an exchange between us and Christ. There's reconciliation to God. There's healing that happens. There is this this victory over death that occurs on the cross and in the resurrection. There is this redo of Adam's screw up (laughs) with Jesus's perfection. And Jesus is definitely the perfect example and the one we should follow in the way of love. So all of these atonement theories are, are true in part and maybe not fully right in part because they're all scratching at a truth. Now begs the question, how do we decide? what's true and what's not. Remember, we're talking about a new atonement theory that's been posited that basically Jesus died on the cross because he hacked off empire. And it really had nothing to do with our sin as human beings. But how do we really know what's right and wrong? Well, one of the ways we can make sure we change our mind in a healthy way and not in an unhealthy way is to remind ourselves to stay tethered to Scripture. But as we've seen here, often scripture can be very diverse. Sometimes that's not helpful. How do we pick which atonement theory is right? Well, the good news is we don't have to pick. I mean, we can just accept on faith that we know Jesus died for us. I'll give you an example of how we come to this conclusion. But in order to understand it, we really have to understand how we read our Bibles. See, our Bibles are not primarily a rule book with a list of rights and wrongs. Our Bible is not primarily a history book designed to retell history in great detail and accuracy. Our Bible is a collection of works, of poetry and song and history and story and fable and uh, prayer, (laughs) all kinds of different genre. And this collection of these different kinds of literature makes up our Bible. And sometimes these collections have tension between them, sometimes these collections outright disagree. So, for example, in the resurrection story, if you read all four Gospels, you'll get basically four different versions of the story of Jesus rising from the dead. Which one is true? It's really hard, and Bible scholars will tie themselves in knots trying to harmonize all four Gospels. But the reality is it's just really hard to do. It seems like they all have a slightly different version, and in some ways a completely different version of who saw Jesus first and what those interactions were like, go take a look. That can be really hard when you think the Bible is this uh, inerrant, infallible thing dropped from heaven in a glad bag, like Father Richard Rohr says. What about that tension and that contradiction and things like that? Well, it's helpful if we think of our Bibles not as these these perfect little nuggets that we can grab. And if you just grab this random nugget here, it's perfect. And this random nugget here, it's perfect. No, the Bible's only perfect in its totality, in its conversation within itself from beginning to end. The Bible is perfect and inspired in its totality. And so the Bible's not history necessarily. It's not primarily a rule book. What the Bible is, is wisdom literature. Wisdom literature, it's a collection of thoughts prayers, songs, discussions about who God is, and we are to mine that wisdom from beginning to end to see the spectrum of right and wrong. So how do we get wisdom? 
I'm going to give you an easy formula. You should write this down. Put it on a sticky note. Put it on your mirror because this will help you read your Bibles better. I promise. So you take diversity. You add time. And then you add consensus. This is a math formula. Diversity plus time plus consensus. And what does that equal? That equals wisdom. Now, I got some of this formula from the uh, Hebrew Bible scholar Peter Enns, but I sort of put my own flavor on it. Uh, but basically, this is the formula you need to find the things that are most right and most wrong. And then there's a whole bunch of mushy middle in between where we have to err on the side of love and grace because it's not clear all of the time. The Bible's very diverse. Now, diversity is speaking to that point. You know, the Bible's written over hundreds and hundreds of years by different people from different times and places. It's so diverse. And you have some portions of the Bible from ancient Hebrew language going back to maybe the 12th century BC. And then you have parts of the Bible written maybe as late as the 2nd century AD. And of course, you have the oral tradition that may go back even farther. So there's lots of diversity in the Bible. And if you just look at diversity by itself, you might think like a non-Christian or a more progressive Christian, well, that diversity proves that the Bible is just nonsense because it disagrees and it has tension and there's just a lot of mess there, so it's not really helpful to us. But that's why diversity is just one part of the math formula, right? You have to take diversity plus time. So diversity over a period of time. So you have lots of diverse voices in the Bible, and they're speaking over a long period of time. Like I said, over a millennia of conversation, and maybe more, where they're talking about God and experiences of God. Now, that might actually seem to make it worse, because when you take a lot of diversity over a long time, you get even more opinions, more tension, more contradiction, right? So I've made it worse by taking diversity and time and putting them together. But here's the important part. The last part of the math formula is consensus. So you take diverse viewpoints over a long period of time, and you look for the places where they agree. And you will find there is a lot of agreement in our Bible from the oldest sections to the very newest sections. There's diversity of writers over a long period of time, but there are spots where they reach consensus. And that, my friends, is the height of wisdom. When you can see lots of different people from different times and places agreeing on the same things over and over again, that is the height of wisdom. And so what we see, for example, in our Bibles is love comes up over and over and over again. From the beginning to the end, God is love. Love God and love neighbor is something that's consistent through the entirety of scriptures. There's complete agreement over time from diverse writers that love is the operating principle of God. Another example is the issue of justice. Virtually every writer of the Bible agrees that justice should be done, that we should care for the marginalized, care for the oppressed, care for the immigrants, care for the eunuch, uh, care for those who are not treated well, care for the widows, care for the orphans, right? This issue of justice is consistent across the entirety of Scripture. And so we have diverse views over time, having consensus about things like love and justice, 
And then we see that too in our atonement theory, right? Because all these atonement theories are really debating how atonement works, but they all agree about what atonement did. Jesus died for our sins. That's plain and simple, consensus over all the New Testament. And so when we have a meme out there claiming that Jesus did not die for the sins of humanity, but because he stood up to empire, we have a problem. Because diversity over time, reaching consensus, has said we don't know how atonement works, we don't know what exactly happened on the cross, but we know Jesus died for the sin of the world. And it's said over and over and over again in our New Testament. So how do we change our mind in healthy ways? We stay tethered to the Bible, and we look for those areas where it's just really obvious, where the Bible's just screaming at us, this is true, this is true, this is true. You know, those four Gospels disagree about what exactly happened on Resurrection Sunday, but they all agree that Jesus rose from the dead. So we find our consensus and we place our faith there, knowing God has given it to us. So where did Dr. Caleb Lyons go wrong? Now, I'm going to be fair here. I'm not picking on Dr. Lyons because I don't know him, and I there might be a lot more context to this meme. So it's not really about him personally. He probably wrote a really long book <laughs> that I have not had time to read that probably speaks to this. But this meme, anyway, where did this meme go wrong? Where it went wrong was in just one word. It's amazing what one word of difference can make. They said Jesus was crucified for standing up to empire, not to atone for the sins of humanity. I say just change one word. Jesus was crucified for standing up to empire and to atone for the sins of humanity. You see, we get ourselves in trouble when we think dualistically, black or white, right or wrong, or this or that. That's why we end up in division and discord and hate. But think about it. What the heck is empire? It's not some abstract thing out there. Empire is made up of humanity. Empire is a product of humanity. So I hope to God that Jesus died for the sins of humanity, because if not, there's no hope of conquering empire. Because empire is a human institution run by human beings who want to do evil to achieve greater power and greater wealth at the expense of others. Now, to be fair, I believe empire is definitely driven by evil, spiritual evil, evil outside of humanity. Spiritual wickedness is what we say in our Methodist doctrine. I believe that spiritual evil does perpetrate itself on human beings and drive empire, but the sins of humanity are what allow empire to exist. And so, yes, Jesus died because he hacked off empire. He pushed back on the idea that there was no value in someone who was poor or uneducated or from another place or speaking a different language or someone who had a disability or someone who wasn't clean by ritual standards of their day. He definitely hacked off empire and he definitely was killed for hacking off the powers that be. But that might have been why he was killed. It wasn't the effect and the effect was that even though the empire tried to kill Jesus, human beings leading that empire killed Jesus for a reason. Jesus took that and affected it in a whole new way by turning that death into a death for the sin of the world, for everyone, even those 
who lead empire. So if we want to change our mind in healthy ways, we've got to stay tethered to the wisdom of Scripture, and we've got to spend time with each other. Focus on early Christianity before it got in bed with empire, as John Philip Newell says. Those first few hundred years of Christianity when it was at its purest form and we could really see what Jesus was trying to accomplish and what Jesus indeed did accomplish on the cross. Stay tethered to Scripture and stay in Christian community where you can be driven by the power of the Holy Spirit to interpret these things so that you can change your mind in healthy ways and not in unhealthy ways. Amen?